coming up in one minute on the Jack and Around podcast. Willie murdered Ray's prize. I never heard that story. Oh, Ray was into fighting chickens. He used to trade in them and buy them, you know, and fight them. And they were down in the valley someplace, and he had won this fighting. He had this prize fighting chicken that he had won in a fucking cockfight. It was in the bay, and it kept crowing under right under his bunk. (laughs) (laughs) He would have opened it up and shot the fucking chicken and... You know, they, when Ray fired, that was one of the times that Ray fired Willie. When did you leave your house in San Antonio? Uh, I was not quite 17. I just ready to live? go. My parents weren't in any way mean to me. I, I just, you know, the two people that, that didn't deserve anything that they got are my first wife and my parents. When I, got them, I took, I would take massive amounts of acid and it would be like, I'm not talking about club drugs. I'm talking about lysergic acid diethylamide 25. I think I must have known that I that I was put here to do this. I don't know. I it, it takes some audacity to do this in the first place. Like I don't think there's anything wrong with co- the state of country music nowadays. I don't think there's a goddamn thing wrong with it. I, don't think, I think, so think there's country music is whatever these guys say that it is because it's their turn. That's know? right. And some some of them are better than others, and it was always that way. This is the Jack and Around podcast, hosted by two-time Academy of Country Music Award winner and master storyteller Jack Ingram. In these open dialogue podcasts, Jack digs into the personal stories of a wide variety of special guests. And now, here's Jack. The Jack and Around podcast is brought to you by Lone Star Dry Goods, a collection of handcrafted quality goods with a truly unique Americana vibe. Visit the world headquarters in the heart of downtown Abilene, Texas, and Willow Park, Texas, in Fort Worth. Visit LoneStarDryGoods.com for more information. Welcome to the Jacking Around Podcast, available on your favorite audio platforms and in video on YouTube. For links and info, visit JackingAroundPodcast.com. We're, we played, we, we were off last night. We're going to we're Waco tomorrow, and I've never played Waco in my fucking life. Well, and, uh, you weren't missing nothing. Yeah, well, I'm... We'll do a Billy Joe Shaver song on the encore. Um, Only time I played, uh, what was the little dance hall there? There were two of them. Yeah, I remember the place because George used to play there. George Chambers used to play there, and Bush used to play there. And and all those I, guys yeah, when I there. first got started, like one of my first headlining gigs in Waco was uh, playing that dance hall right around the that traffic circle. Where the oh, yeah, yeah, cafe yeah, yeah. is and all that. Yeah, I know what that place is. And uh, Ray Price was at Jack Ingram on Thursday, Ray Price on Friday. I was cool. like, got to pick. That, bu- that bus or Ray's that he was probably in at that gig, you know, Bush had it the last, you know, 15 years of his life. Right. And I, I just ran across a picture on my phone. Just I was looking at Fourth of July pictures looking for something else. And um, so I just put Fourth of July into my phone, and that picture came up. It was me and, and Bush. And uh, his wife and, and Wayman McBride, who was his guitar player for years, who I grew up with. Yeah. And um, that bush, you know, there's a plaque on the thing made made for Ray Price and that bus. He left it on there. He, uh, he Bush wanted to get together and write a song. That's not the bus. That's not the bus. The chicken that Willie murdered the chicken on. That was a flex. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Willie murdered Ray's Price. I've never heard that chicken. story. Oh, Ray was into fighting chickens. He used to trade in them and buy them, you know, and fight them. And they were down in the valley someplace, and he had won this fight. He had this prize fighting chicken that he had won in a fucking cockfight, you know, and 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 it was worth money in that world. Right. And Willie, it was fucking with Willie's sleep, and Willie got up and shot the fucking chicken and went out. It was it was in the bay, and it kept crowing under right under his bunk. <laughs> <laughs> he would have opened it up and shot the fucking chicken and, 
you know, they, Ray fired. That was one of the times that Ray fired Willie. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> that must have been when Willie was still drinking. Oh, yeah. Willie didn't quit drinking until pretty late after, you know. It's uh, the pot thing. It's funny. He was the le- he was the lightest pot smoker among that group. Ray was the pothead. That's right. where he, you know, Ray smoked pot from the time he was a teenager. Bush smoked pot some more than Willie did. Well, every time you I know. read about Willie's story of it, is that it was just a substitute. He he just got tired of being an asshole. Yeah, it was. It got tired of not being able to keep his dick in his pants. That cost him money. Is what happened. Okay, same thing. <laughs> That's what happened. Every time he took, it's like me. I want, when people offer me a dress, I say, "No, I don't do that." Because when I drink, other people take their clothes off. And cost me <laughs> a lot of money. It's like I want to say, "Is that mine?" Still. Yeah, that's yours. Okay. But anyway. So where are you living now, Nashville? No, New York. 17 years. I've, I got, I've got that house in Fairview still. You still play that place where we had Chili. Yeah. You still I just, got that. I just kind of, um, um, I mean, I'm there for holidays and stuff. Yeah. And when we rehearse for tours. Um, the, the thing I remember most about that place was uh, every time somebody crossed the gate about a mile out or three, well, five Well, it's when they hit yards. the end of the gate, the top of the road, that ding. Ding, that, ding. That, the alarm's gone. <laughs> I, I, got, I had that for a reason because I got surprised a couple of times and I had that so I could run out through the woods at one point in my life. But the driveway was originally gravel and I could always hear cars coming up and then I paved it and it got quiet. It started freaking me out. So I put that alarm out there. <laughs> so, People could sneak up on you. Yeah. So I you bought the house in 1988. Which was 15 years after you moved there? After what? After you moved to Nashville? Yeah, at least, yeah, 15. I think that's right, because Guitar Town's about 13 years. So when you got to Nashville and you were a kid, you were, what, 17? No, no. Rodney likes to think I was 18 because it makes him think he's younger. So he thinks He always says I was 17. He's what started that rumor. I was 19. Right. I was pretty close to 20. You know, I got there in November of 1974, and I turned 20 the following January. And how many songs did you have in your, in your notebook when you got there? Oh, I don't know, but I threw every single one of them away. That's what I was about to ask. So I've always one. wondered if you not came one. out fully baked. No, no, there's not one. There's not a single one that survived after I got there. The first few songs, there's a few songs I still play that I wrote in that first couple of months. The Mercenary song, um, which I play occasionally. Which you didn't put on record until... Uh, it took 13 years for me to, to, to get, for get to our town. It took me, I made a record in 82. I made a EP for a little independent label called LSI. I had that three-piece rockabilly. Was it that rockabilly? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so that 82. And then, um, so the same year that, um, you know, it's, it's when Keen was living up there because it was the year Justin was born, you mm-hmm. know. He was born in 82. So um, Keen was there 83, I guess. Is Were you and Robert running buddies? I knew him for a long time. Yeah, KDB was a friend of mine, so I, I met him through KDB when mm-hmm. he was before – no kind of dancer came out, you know. I mean, just before that record, just before they released that record. Man, I I first ran across his music when he. It's it was the storytelling that got me. Yeah. That, well, that live. I mean, I knew Lyle. Me. I knew Lyle before long before I knew Kane, just because I was you know, I played Anderson Fair I, I, when I could. I I, I was kind of banned from Anderson Fair because Towns was, and I I played there. The only time I played there was I opened for Eric Taylor. He would always make them put me on the bill when he played there. And he, when you he, were living here, when you were in Houston. When I was living in Houston, yeah. yeah. So and why I, did you, why did you leave home anywhere. so early, man? The what? When, when did you leave your house in San Antonio? Uh, I was not quite 17. Was it, you were just ready to go? 
I just ready to Live. go. My parents weren't in any way mean to me. I, I just, you know, the two people that, that didn't deserve anything that they got are my first wife and my parents when it got right down to it, you know. So um, I didn't, um, I just knew what I wanted to do, you know. Right. Even a psychiatrist that I was seeing, you know, back then told my parents that, you know, he knows what he wants to do. He says, so you uh, have, so you did, so there was reason for you to go to psychiatrists at that, like you, well, you my, saw somebody. I, no, everybody, I mean, probably, but, but the, the deal, that's probably a reason for everybody to go. But the reason I was there was where every other kid that went to a psychiatrist, middle-class kid that went to a psychiatrist because my parents caught me with drugs. I guess. So, you know, I, I, I took, I thought I was a sky pilot and I took, I would take massive amounts of acid and it would be like. I'm not talking about club drugs. I'm talking about lysergic acid diethylamide 25. And and I I just because um, I started I was taking acid in 69, 70. What was it, what was the appeal to that, man? Like as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old? I was 14 when I started. Yeah. Like that's a that's 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 a real drug. It's a real drug. It's it's a weird, I feel the sort of the same way that that um that Ram Dass did about it. You know, I don't think I would be the same person if I'd never taken it. And for a long time, I didn't trust anybody that had never taken LSD. Right. But um, it was, um, for me, it was, a, I'm, I'm an addict. So it, I got I got addicted to LSD just like I did everything else. But was it everything really else? It didn't matter what With all that stuff, self-medication at the end of the day, once you once you got off of it and, and got in a stable Well, that situation. took years. I, I took drugs in some form or fashion for years and years and years. And I just sh juggled them around enough. I left Texas when I did because Austin, you know, whenever I was going to Austin, I went to Nashville because whether too good, girls too pretty, dope too cheap, I know I won't get anything done here. And I went right. to Nashville. And, and um, you know, I knew and, and I tried. I, I would do things like I got to Nashville. I started shooting heroin when I was 13, even before I did LSD. And I would get strung out and I would lay down and get, you know, get well and lay off of it for a while. And so I did that dance for years mm -hmm. and I always injected it. I never took it any other way until much later um, when I was doing another kind of flirting with it when I started doing it again. But basically I got to Nashville and opiates were ridiculously expensive there. There was no way for a guy scuffling around could afford them. I did cocaine when somebody that could afford it had it. Right. Mainly I drank. The alcohol became the drug of choice when I got to Nashville. It was a drink in town. And um still is. I already drank, you know, too much. And um and um you know, I was weird because I was like I I had a pretty high capacity for alcohol. I didn't have that allergy thing that Towns had and a few other people I know had. That You're talking about the that personality just changed just instantly, yeah. you know, and you could see that in their eyes when it happened. I didn't have, but my personality changed, but I could, I could tolerate a lot of liquor, but there was a point at which I did black out. It took a lot, but I, right. but, but it would happen. I can imagine, you know, guy like you, I'm a Texan. I can drink all night. The what? You're a Texan. You can come from Texas. Well, I thought I was supposed to. I thought yeah. it's that stuff. And, and there was also, yeah, you could drive around, you know with an open container in your car when I was growing up. You yeah. could drive, you could, you know, you, it was, and then it was legal. It was legal for, to drive and drink literally as long as you would submit to a breathalyzer, I you know? And uh, it was, then they changed it to where it was just uh, anybody else in the car could have an open container, but the driver couldn't. So the, the law was basically that. Right. You know? <laughs> you got That's what it was like when I, when I got my license. Yeah. Yeah, so. So when you got to town, did you, did you automatically hook up with 
did you or did you already know Guy in, in Towns? I met Guy in Nashville. I knew Towns. And I, Susan Walker and I were talking about this because I'm trying to figure out whether it was her house or not, and, and she can't remember. Um, I'm doing a Jerry Jeff record. I'm, I, I decided to complete the set, and we've yeah. already started rehearsing for it. We're gonna re that's what we're going to record next. And and I probably would have done it before now, but Justin died, so so I made that record. Um, but there was, um, you know, Django actually came out to see us at Green Hall, and that was like that's where this conversation started and I asked her and she's trying to remember but I crashed the first time I was ever in the same room with Guy and Jerry Jeff when I didn't pay to see a show right. was Jerry Jeff's 33rd birthday party he was playing Castle Creek and I was I'd hitchhiked up from San Antonio I was there I had a construction job and a, and a gig at a gazebo this guy that you know Pizza Hut's were, were franchises they were right. independently on so the guy owned a Pizza Hut on San Pedro Built a gazebo in the back and started having live music in, and I was playing there, right. you know. And uh, it, it was because I started there before I turned eighteen, you know. So it was, I could play there. I couldn't play in a bar, and right. um, um, it was like, um, um, I just I quit the construction job because I kind of had to because I think it was a Thursday night. It was whatever March sixteenth fell on that year. So he was on his birthday. Yeah, he was on his birthday. Yeah, he was playing Castle Creek. When was he born? He was 70, 30. He was almost 80. He was 79 when he died. He was His next birthday, would have been, he would have been 80. I think that's right. He's 78 or 79. I think 79. Yeah. Um, 40, um, was he the same age as my uncle? I think he's born. He was. Is um, what? 1942. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because John Lennon good was born math. 40. Yeah, yeah. Good, good job. We didn't know there'd be math on this deal. But but I um, I went to, I went and I had the money for a ticket. I bought a ticket. Uh, I'd hitchhiked up. And then I was, um, before the, the um, before Jerry Jeff and them went on, I can't remember who opened. I was, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out who opened that show. But before he went on, um, you know, it's, the old Castle Creek, there was a, the dressing rooms were here, right off the stage and back in the corner, and right in front of that was the two restrooms. And and I was um, coming out of the bathroom, and I overheard John Inman John telling a girl where the party was going to be. And I lied to this other girl that I'd met there, <laughs> that because like I said, I hitchhiked and told her we were invited to right. the, to the party. And uh, Went over there and I just kept my hat down over my eyes and stuff. And and not only was your Jeff there, but but um, Rusty Weir was there, B. W. Wow. Stevenson was there, Steve Fromholz was there. And you're walking and, into a heavy room. And the guitar was going around the start going around the room, but but I didn't have the balls. I just kinda hugged. But Bill Callery was there too. Bill Bill C was there. And um So in that room, how many people did you know? Nobody. 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 And um I um, then towns about um, about the time that I think Jerry Jeff was starting to figure out I wasn't supposed to be there. I think I've, I was starting to get paranoid anyway. <laughs> um, towns came in and I'd seen him play a lot, but I'd never met him. And he uh, he was wearing this beautiful white buckskin jacket, you know, with fringe on it, beads. And Jerry Jeff used to give away hats and jackets. Those were two things that he gave. He gave away hats and jackets. And he broke guitars. Yeah. And um, he <laughs> um, he like um, he'd given t 
Townsend's birthday is 10 days before Jerry Jeff's or, or nine days. Oh, that's me. Hang on. Just give me, give me a second here. I'm going to have to. Hey, man, are you all right? Okay, we're just, I'm in the middle of an interview. Just give me a sec. Give me about an hour and, and then call me back. All right. See you. Later. Bye. Um, sponsee. So I, I had to pick it up. Gotcha. Um, the, um, so hold on. Towns walks in with the buckskin. The, yeah. And a beautiful girl, one of the most beautiful girls I've ever seen. I, la I later met her because it was the last kind of really nice girlfriend he had for a while. So he met Cindy. You know, he went through a girlfriendless period there after that for a while, and I, which I was a part of that. But uh, uh, meeting Towns and the whole, that whole, you know, Wabash Cannonball incident's about two months later in mm -hmm. Houston. But, but he walks in and he starts a dice game and he loses that jacket because Jerry Jeff gave it to him like on, on Towns' birthday off of his back, right. literally. And um, I think it, at um, the Saxon pub and uh, the old Saxon pub. Right. And um, he, um, <laughs> he lost the jacket and every dime he had and then left. And I thought my hero, you know, and, and, it was like, <laughs> <laughs> and I just, how we choose our heroes. Yeah. Jerry Jeff was definitely my hero up to that point. At that point, it kind of started to be towns. Now, why was Jerry Jeff such a big part? I mean, I know, I know why he was for me, but part of it was hitchhiking. You know, the thing about Jerry Jeff was I knew those Atco records and that stuff, you know, because I, I, I'll tell you, when I was a, in 1969, when I was a freshman in high school, my drama teacher, a guy named Vernon Carroll, um, he gave me my first copy of The Free Will and Bob Dylan. My first Bob record was Highway 61 because of my age. Mm -hmm. So I backtracked to all that acoustic stuff. Now, I wanted to sound like Jimi Hendrix, but my dad wouldn't let me have an electric guitar, so I became a folky by default. Right. My dad would not let me have an electric guitar. So um, I started gravitating towards records that sounded, you know, Beatles and Stone songs that had acoustic guitars on them, Kink songs, and then a lot of, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, all that stuff was going on. And I started backtracking, trying to figure out where all that came from. And then Vernon Carroll gave me a copy of The Free Will and Bob Dylan. The same year... We did a show at school. He was my drama teacher, and he gave me him, and George Chambers was my science teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, George Chambers and San Antonio. You know, you know, I George, is, George is like, uh, well, ask Willie Nelson who George Chambers is. He, yeah. uh, great local country singer around San Antonio. Never quite um, broke nationally. He had a big regional hit called Ding Dong Howdy, which was a Doug Haywood song um, in the 70s. And he was the only teacher at my school that drove a Mercedes convertible because he – he played gigs around South Texas on the weekends, and he taught school. His mom, I guess his, I don't know whether what the deal was, whether his dad died young. I never knew him to know, if, but he was taking care of his mother. He lived with his mom, took care of her. Right. And uh, so he just never quite made the, he, when he went to Nashville to record or do this or do that, he stayed up, you know, at Ridgetop at Willie's. Yeah. Um, so you, that, you started, he was you were in a science, band with him? He, he's my science teacher. Oh, I'll see him at, he'll be at this, he lives right up the road from, from um, floors, he'll be at the he'll be at the show Saturday night. Yeah, um, <clears throat> he's he's Willie's age. He's he's eighty eight. You right. know, so, um, but um, he um, Bush was his next door neighbor. You know, right. and until he passed away. Um, but I just um, so long. You were in a band with your teacher. 
he was my drama. I, I played bass a couple of times. Actually, his bass player at the time was B Spears. Oh, wow. And when B went to work for Bush, I, I subbed a little bit, but I wasn't good enough to be in that band for any length of time. Well, it seemed like you faked your way into pretty good gigs. I just got lucky, you know, and then I, I didn't... Um, I played bass a little bit, and I kind of lied and said I played bass where I did. That's how I got the gig of a guy. And guy had a bass. I didn't have one. So. Right. And I lost his bass. I lost it in my car in front of the gold rush. Somebody stole it. Knocked out the back window. <laughs> Imagine that. Day, so he was mad at me for about that for years. But um, there's, um, you know, I just, um, Vernon, Vernon Carroll, the drama teacher, and he and George were buddies. You know, they, they were the same age and, didn't think like the other teachers did. Mm -hmm. you know, they weren't fucking football coaches, you know. Right. So, the um, all my English teachers were football coaches, which is a fucking all mine tragedy. were history. Yeah, so yeah, history and English, what that's what they let them teach, which is fucked up. Yeah. Uh, but um, that's the two things they should. Some of them were. That's the two things they should never be able to teach. They be, they, they're qualified to teach health and PE, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. Really. And health, I'm, that's questionable. But um, my health teacher was a football coach, and he yeah. and he he was also a part time police officer, and he's the one that told us. Carry a six pack will make you pour it out. If you carry a twelve pack, you're going to get a ticket. Carry more than a twelve pack, you're going to jail. <laughs> if you carry a joint, we're going to make you throw it out. If you carry a dime bag, you're going to get a ticket. If you if you get more than a quarter, you're out. You're done. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, it was just a little earlier than that. So the only place you could get away with getting caught with a joint in, in the state was Austin, right? You know, and uh, and cops were in Austin were way different than they are now. Um, but at any rate, Vernon Carroll decided we were going to do a show called The World of Carl Sandburg, which had been up on Broadway in the 50s or early 60s, 50s, in the 50s sometime. And it was, you know, Carl Sandburg was the other folk song collector that was important besides the Lomaxes, the Carl Sandburg's American song bag. And um, I did a bunch of, I learned Cocaine Blues for that that show. And I was just, I was in the show. I didn't really, I wasn't really acting it. I was, I was about just, to say, man, so you, I was you just were singing. And, and he decided he wanted Mr. Bojangles in the show. And so I learned Mr. Bojangles from the Atco record. Yeah. You know, the, the original recording. The very first one. Him, him and Bromberg. Yeah. Know. And um, and that's when I learned the song. So I knew Is it. Is that the recording where it, 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 it sounds like it's at a radio station or something? And the, the engineer goes, Wow. Is that yours? That's there, <laughs> there, there. That this is there. This is a studio recording. It's <laughs> yeah. on the, it's on, he was on, Vanguard for a couple of records, and then he was on Atco for that one moment. You know, Mr. But he recorded Mr. Rojangles before on the second. He recorded it, I think, three times, maybe four what times. Was there, what was that band he had? Circus Maximus. Circus Maximus. That was him, and Gary B. White was the bass player in that band. Gary White was uh, wrote, I think, I'm Gonna Love You for a Long, Long Time. He's oh, from wow. Houston. You know, the, Jerry Jeff, Guy. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, Jerry Jeff, Baby Keith, Keith Sykes. Uh, Emily Lou Harris, and uh, it pisses him off. I call him Baby Keith because he's you know I'm the only person that ever was around him was younger than him. But um, <laughs> Jerry Jeff, Gary White, Keith, Emmy, and Bromberg all lived in the same building on Thompson Street, right around the corner from where I live right now. No kidding. Yeah. And were they all friends? Huh? Were they Were they all friends? Oh yeah, yeah. Because uh, Bromberg and Jerry Jeff were the were the house band and open for everybody at. Um, at um where where was it they were at um at the bitter end mm -hmm. and emmy were open for everybody at folk city and that's before she hooked up and went 
and made the records with, with, oh, oh yeah, with Graham yeah, way before. That was for, that first record of hers was made around that time when she was in New York, and uh, she was married the first time, right. you know, right, you know, right after that. And um, it's Holly's dad, right. and um, uh, and then she went to D.C., which is back where she was, where she went to high school, mm -hmm. and um, that's where she met first Chris Hillman. Chris Hillman told Graham about her. Oh, really? Yeah, because she opened for. She opened for um, whatever Chris was doing just before the Burrito Brothers. Right. You know. Towns that night at the party, Jerry's birthday. I didn't really meet him. I just saw him. I just witnessed it that night. And you then, saw him then the, walk then, out in a blaze. Then, then I, a, cu a couple of months later, I was playing the old quarter, and he walked in, and and um, I went to Houston looking for Towns. I, you know, that, well, that's I, what I mean. Did, when he when he saw you play at the old quarter, was it one of those deals where where he comes up and goes, "Damn, son." No, it was him sitting in front of the stage, drunker and Cooter Brown, heckling me when I was playing with about four people in the house, and he was one of them. So it was really hard. But he didn't say one word when I was playing. It was just in between in songs. He said, play the Wabash Cannonball, you know. And finally, I admit I didn't know the Wabash Cannonball. And you call yourself a folk singer, and you don't know the Wabash Cannonball. And then I, I finally uh, played Mr. Mud and Mr. Gold, and he shut up. <laughs> Because I knew every word. I was one of two people that knew. Maybe, no, three. Me, Rex Bell, and Vince Bell. The only three people that knew that song. That I've heard he could dancing. be tough. Hmm? I heard, I've heard he, that he could have been. That he he could be tough. Oh yeah. No, he was he was hard on me. He was hard on everybody, but but guy. He could and he could be a little hard on guy. Mainly, he was hard on himself. Right. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> so after you get get up to Nashville and you kind of get your footing and you're playing bass with guy and. You knew something was going on. I was talking to somebody the other day. I was like, because I was asking, was, was Steve aware of what a great songwriter he was going to be or whatever? And then I was like, well, man, he wouldn't be hanging out with that crew unless. A guy championed you. I mean, if you if you, if you look at um, Heartworn Highways, I was almost completely cut out of the movie. I'm just sort of there, the original version of it. I'm, I'm just sort of there at the Christmas Eve hammered. and um, But you can. In the extra footage, they 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 included the part where I play the mercenary song, and, and guy goes, he goes to everybody in the room, makes everybody shout, says, "Listen to this song," and even the guy behind the camera says, "Listen to this song," and um, and uh, it, he just did that. He did it with Rodney before All right, big time, but, it was but when you, that. But you were what nineteen twenty? I was nineteen. Yeah, nineteen twenty. Yeah. All right, so I remember being nineteen twenty and trying to think I could write a song, so. What did that do? Like, you knew who Guy Clark was. Yeah, yeah. What did that, what, like, you know, what, did you go, holy shit? Well, I, got, I don't maybe know. I, I think something. I must have known that I that I was put here to do this. I don't know. I, it, it takes some audacity to do this in the first place. I had a guy, you know, my first wife, she was going to come to the show tonight, but she came down with some flu symptoms. She's not going to come. She's living back in San Antonio, and she was going to come tonight. But she, my first wife's, um, Father really hated me. And he brought, I was playing Sand Mountain. John Kerry could come back and was running it. And um, he brought this guy down that he said was from Columbia Records. And I didn't know anything about the record business again. And the guy had been sort of set up. They sat there and drank, and then the guy told me that wasn't any good. And then he leaves. And and Carrick, and I said something to John Kerry, but he goes, that guy that guy's a sales guy at, at, at CBS. He didn't, you know, he didn't have anything to do with yeah, signing anybody. Yeah. I didn't know what the fuck he's talking about. I went to high school with that asshole. 
And, you know, and it was just, he was, he brought the guy in to, you know, to convince, his basically to convince his daughter, his, yeah. you know, that, that I wouldn't, she had, it was right before we got married. Cause, cause Sandy and I met when I was 14, I ran away from home. She was 13. I ran away from home. I was at large in Houston for about a month. And we met then she had a boyfriend, but I remembered her. And when I went over to Houston on my own, when I was 17, she didn't have a boyfriend. And I, you know, tracked her down, and and um, I stayed in touch with some people, that, some kids that I met over there right. during that time. Not her, but her best friend. I was in touch with the whole time, and um, we wanted to get married, and her parents didn't want to give her permission to get married, but they, you know, they couldn't stop her from living. She dropped out of school. I dropped out of school, and she was seventeen, so she, um, she. That's how she got to move in. When she just said. Well, since I turned 18, we're going to get married. And, said, and they, they thought, well, let her live with me. Then she'd get tired of not living in the style. She'd become accustomed. And we were right. in a shitty apartment on Buffalo Speedway out there by the Astrodome. And, right. But she did. And, you know, she moved to San Antonio and me. And then she her parents invited her. With you? The what? She moved to Nashville with you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went on my own first, and she came up later, you know, a couple few months later. She moved back in with her parents for a while while I, while I hitchhiked up. Her parents invited her to go to Mexico to set her sister up and didn't invite me. Right. And she went. And uh, I, um, you know, her sister was going down there teaching at a, at a English school in San Miguel Allende. That's how I found out about San Miguel. Right. And later on, after we were married, we, when Susan moved back up, Sandy and I, they, her parents flew us down there and we rode with her to bring her car back to the States, which was an adventure. But So um, how long did, you, did that first marriage last? Three and a half years. That's pretty good for marriages. Marriages lasted three years, as far as I knew, for a long time. Right. <laughs> you know, where was she? Now I know that you married two two women twice. No, just one twice. I'm not that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, half divided by half. <laughs> yeah. No, I married one one twice, and uh, Ian's mother, um, Luann, I married her twice. Um, I married my second wife's name was Cynthia Dunn. She was just as wild as I was, and I thought that's what I wanted. Yeah. And um, the, um, you know, my third wife was Justin's mom, mm -hmm. Carol, and uh, Carol Ann, and um, and then Lou was four, Ian's mom, and then Teresa, you know, who was like once I once Guitar Town came out and I started. Finding Teresa out was with the record label. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one or two A and R people I live with. That's which is kind of an unnatural act, but um, I, um, you know, it's just one of those things. That, that, well, that had to do with drugs too. I mean, I think you're emotionally, emotionally, un, you know, unstable when you right. when you're an addict, and and it makes you you do that the same way you do everything else. You know. So did that ever did that ever scare you, man? Like being untethered like that, like when. You'd get married. No, I don't know why. I mean, my father at one point, because I'd been in Nashville for a long time, and the record deal never happened, and I was like, you know, through a couple of publishing deals, and then Justin was born, and I was kind of in a panic and working a couple of jobs. Plus, I had a publishing deal, but I was getting a smaller draw than I started out with, which is never a good sign. Mm -hmm. I was kind of running the publishing company, too. And, um, and were you getting any cuts? or No, not really. And then I did get one cut, a Giant Lee record, and, and the year Justin was born in 82. And... Um, but it was still few and far between. I get a cut here and there, but only one single that ever made any money. That was that Johnny Lever, John Scott Sherrill and I wrote. Okay. And um, 
you know, the how old were you I just about point? giving up when Guitar Town came along. And Noel Fox signed me to Silverline Go Line, and he told me to just I'd already had a record deal and lost it basically at the Rockabilly thing. They signed me because that was a thing, and then thought they were going to get Rockabilly Records on country radio. That didn't happen, so they put me with Emory Gordy to do something more conventional, and those singles didn't happen. They didn't release the album. And then they dropped me, but so no before Fox Guitar signed Town. me. That, huh? You made a record before Guitar Town that was with... Yeah, it, it wasn't released until later. This, track, this thing they call Early Tracks, okay. which was originally an album that was intended to be called Cadillac, which was just a three-piece band. And then there's four sides that were done with Emory that got stuck onto that and a later version of that, that re-release. So. so you got a kid, you've already had a publishing deal, you've already had a record deal. I've been through a couple of publishing deals. Right. But then Silverline signed me, and Noel just set that place up to be what Bob Beckham originally set Combine up to be, but he bailed on it too, when the idea was a place for writer artists. And he had um, he um, the Oak Ridge Boys money, and uh, Noel was a member of the Oak Ridge Boys. He was the bass singer, the last gospel version of the Oaks before Richard Sturban. He was right. the bass singer before Sturban. Right. And... Um, he was a good song guy, and he just encouraged me to write the way that I write. And I wrote the, I wrote, I, I, find, I went and saw Bruce Springsteen um, on the Born in the USA tour, and I just went home and decided I was going to write an album, even though I didn't have a record deal at that point. Tony Brown was one of the writers because he had this long-standing relationship with the Oak Ridge Boys because he'd been in their band, you know. Um, so you got some publishing. So yeah, it was just like he basically. Um, when Bowen, when he left RCA, when it went to MCA, um, he he went to Bowen. They they, they hired him, Emory Gordy, and and uh, who else? Uh, uh, David Hungate. And they, they said and told them all, you can say, okay, you're A and R guys, you can sign whoever you want to. And, and Tony and and Emory said, want to sign Steve Earle, and he said anybody but Steve Earle because Bowen hated me. And, Why? Uh, Bowen hated Rockabilly because he came from. Being in a little rockabilly duo, you know, like Party Doll, that's Buddy Knox and Jimmy Bowen, and Knox singing on the Party Doll side, and he had the B side, the one song he sang. So <laughs> that's probably why he hates rockabilly, because he had the B side. But um, he just hated me, and it, 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 he fought me every inch of the way. And when Guitar Town came out, he he didn't think the record was going to do anything. The first single, which was Hillbilly Howie, didn't do very much. But it charted, and so I was excited. I had a top. I was about to say, what did you think it was? Did you know, did you know what you had? Did you know you just the same? Like we knew we knew that that it was a really really good record. I didn't know whether it would get on country radio, and I wasn't even thinking about that. I wrote, like I said, I was trying to write "Born in the USA." I was well, writing an album. To a certain to an extent, album, you did. You know, so um, I just uh, "Guitar Town" as a single blew my mind. That that was what hit, you know. That that did better than Hillbilly Highway. Hillbilly Highway was co-written and a little more contrived. Um, Guitar Town was just. It was written for one purpose. I saw Bruce walk out and play "Born in the USA" to open the show, and I wrote it to be the opening song of that record. She wrote the, the travel. That was the only you wrote a reason. Let's get up and go. It was just based, and, and there was a song like that on every record I've ever made. A song that just basically says, "Here I am." You know, I just kind of decide that's how you put an album together. I mean, I grew up in the era of albums you know so yeah. um well that was still an era of albums the what 80, 86 87 yeah it was but i mean i grew up i but nashville was never that i mean the, the, the johnny cash made a concept a few concept records even before the beatles did 
And now, Willie that, had made those records. That, now, that just happened, but they still, Nashville hated that. Willie had to leave to do that. He didn't live there anymore when he right. made Faces and Stages. And he'd, he'd, that was all after he moved back to Texas. So, um, so when you, when you, when Guitar Town comes out and you start, it, it's picking up some steam or how did, how did that work back then? Was it just, well, I, I figured out that I wasn't going, Bowen hated me. And so I figured out I wasn't going to be able to consistently, and Sheila Shipley here ran the, the promotion part of it hated me too. So well, she hated me because she hated me because Bowen hated me. It was her job and it was her job to hate me. I mean, I so, know that it's fun to think you can be a hate, but you're not a hateable guy. Oh, I don't know. I think there's, pe there's people that hate me, but it's not, it's not even about that. It was I'm just about, about I just wasn't controllable to them. They, it wasn't, Bowen had, it, I, I had every, he, he made me do a demo to get that deal. He said, you got to prove to me he can sing. So they went in and really beat me to death on, on the vocals, getting them to where they were really in tune and whatever. He just decided I couldn't sing. And I have trouble listening to my vocals on get on those three albums. And the, you do the four albums. Yeah, I don't think I think I'm a way better singer now than I was when I made Guitar Town. And and I think what happened was when I got out of jail, I I started recording an analog for one thing, and I just and I didn't wasn't really about that as much as it was just something that started working with Ray Kennedy, and we. Um, because of this thing he was doing to avoid using reverb where he was cranking the compression all the way up, it made me able to sing really quiet. And I've been listening to a lot of Chet Baker records. Mm -hmm. And I just, the, that, the fact that I didn't have to sing the same volume all the time was intriguing to me. And I think with that point, my pitch got better. And, and, you're I, much and more I, had aware more, I had more than one gear. I had one more than one voice. Yeah. And if you're a storyteller, it's great to have a style. But it's also, if you're trying to tell stories and play characters, it's better to have more than one voice. And I do. Right. You know, so that, and, and, and it probably hurt, you know, in some ways, just as a recording artist. But I didn't, I was taught to, I grew up on, on songwriting that was literature. I'm a post-Bob Dylan songwriter. Mm -hmm. Bob changed everything because and the difference is other people had literary chops that wrote songs cole porter did robert johnson did robert johnson wasn't robert johnson because of of his guitar playing skip james was as good a guitar player as robert johnson it's the songs he wrote every single song to modern blues is based on led zeppelin's not about proto metal they had songs right you know nirvana songs, songs. you know so it's, it's always that and you know, I don't know what maybe the era's come and gone, but 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 I definitely didn't understand. Uh, to me, it had to be literature. Yeah, and and it never, I never questioned that. And I and I got there after Chris had been there, which is what he was the post Bob Dylan songwriter that changed everything. It allowed it to happen. And I got there after that. So and I stumbled into the salon that existed for just a few years, that was basically around Guy Clark as far as the writers goes and the literary part of it and John Hartford musically, that whole hippie bluegrass contingent right. there. And it's a great time to be there. And I learned a lot really, really fucking fast. And then the door closed. Right. And I didn't get a record deal before that happened. So. But when you say you learned a lot, I was like, I understand what, was it just by osmosis and hanging out and watching? Because, you know, one yeah, of the things. Basically, but guy would show me some things. He would. Yeah. I mean, he, he probably, Rodney, Rodney one time said, well, guy didn't, when the teacher, he didn't teach you anything. I said, 
He taught me shit. You <laughs> <laughs> must have liked me better. <laughs> and I don't see, and I just think it's just one of those things. I think I, I think I ask questions. Yeah. You Were know? you always a reader and a voracious? Yeah, yeah. and I I, I, guy? I, I, I always read a lot. That's that's the thing. The only reason I know anything is I read constantly. Science fiction got me reading above my level at pretty early age, and and um, I just did a thing for Audible that, that was about that about that moment. It's based on the idea that I have, and I teach it in my classes that in my camp, there's a moment in 1965 when Bob Dylan wants to be John Lennon and John Lennon wants to be Bob Dylan. And at that moment, rock and roll becomes an art form. Right. And I think the lyrics are how rock and roll gets to be art. Otherwise, it's just absolutely. Otherwise, songs it's about still, cars and girls. Yeah. I think it's the which are, which are great that. songs, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no doubt about it. That time you were talking about with Ray and learning how to alter your voice and have different characters. It's funny, man, because that was the first big record I made was about that same time right. that you taught yeah. me the same thing of like, man, get your face up there in the mic. I remember you telling, remember those air, whatever you call them. Oh, well, those. Oh, those pot screens. We call them, well, I call them, because Joe Hardy, the late, great Joe Hardy, who recorded Copperhead Road, called them that. I call them We Are the Worlds. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first time I ever saw one was in that video. That's right. So, that's but Joe I do Hardy remember learning how to make a record because of that. Like, Yeah, I mean, I learned it's a way to make a record. It's not the only way to make a record. There's right. other way to make a record, but I learned a way. And I still make them that, that way, the way that Ray and I did. And I still work with Ray. He's he's an engineer on the records rather than a co-producer now because it's just that's just a matter of titles anyway. So that's basically the same thing he always did. Do you um, still produce many outside records other than you? Not your very often. I do it once in a while. Did you enjoy that? I do enjoy it, but I only enjoy it. I, I hate it when... Um, I could never do it for a living because you just have to, you're going to have to end up siding with a label against an artist to, to keep that job, Yeah, you know, to be able to get a lot of work. And I just couldn't consistently do that. So, um, Jim Dickinson never worked for the same label twice because he'd always end up siding with the artists. But, and sometimes it's just Dickinson. Dickinson would fuck artists up every once in a while because he was just hard headed. And well, he, it's, he, it's, Dickinson would forget that it wasn't his record. It's it also hard record. when guys like you or Dickinson or anybody else that has that kind of talent, that kind of career, you want to give, you want to give that gift to young artists who are like I do want to teach yeah, them how to be thick-headed but and sometimes wanted, if they if they I, can't I, I carry that through a, yeah I approach it as a teacher I had teachers I had people I had a real live apprenticeship and so I tried to put that back that's all I, I mean had. some of the lessons that that young artists like I was you know you, you pay for that later on with with other labels when you you go no because here's how my heroes did it and you here's how my heroes heroes did it and they said, no, this is my thing. I'll take it or leave it. And then you end up losing two or three record deals and go, right. you, you yeah, have to well, really learn to pick yourself things. up. There's always somebody that has an idea of how things are going to be done in Nashville or wherever. And it doesn't matter. Like, like I don't think there's anything wrong, you know, um, with the state of country music nowadays. I don't think there's a goddamn thing wrong with it. I think, I think so there's, I don't, when Guitar Town was out, I was, Playing Las Vegas, not a showroom, but a fucking joint, a, mm -hmm. a dance hall, just like we have here with the, where, where the dance floor right in front of the stage that I had to get across to get to an audience that gave a fuck. That's right. And and I was like, um, this one guy kept dancing by, and every time he'd come by, he'd go, he'd go, play something country. Guitar Town was the number one at country album that week. And I heard, but the third time he did it, I stopped the band in the middle of the song, only time I've ever done it. I said, I said, you know what, Hoss? 
I got the number one album on the Billboard country charts this week. This week, I decide what's fucking country and what's <laughs> not. And, and I've, the same way about, I've heard people, some of my peers and some people that I love, talking about, well, that's not country music. That's bullshit. Yeah, you know, it is that, what that's it bullshit. is. That's bullshit. It's just country music is whatever these guys say that it is because it's their turn. That's know? right. And so, some of them are better than others, and it was always that way. Yeah, man, for every Willie and Waylon, there was a Dave and Sugar. No, there was twenty Dave and Sugars. <laughs> That's what I mean. You know, it was always, or maybe a hundred Dave and Sugars. Yin and the Yang, and Willie. You well, know? man, I know you got a show to do. Thanks for sitting down with me, man. I really love catching yeah, up. Yeah, no, glad, glad we got to do it. And uh, yeah, you know, this thing is just like uh, I'm gonna make a record of Jerry Jeff songs. That's what's next. I'm working on with Horton Foote's daughters on a musical of Tender Mercies right now. That's oh, wow. the next theater project, and we're about. I'm about three songs into it. I'm working on this TV pilot that I'm writing, which is a science fiction thing. I'm going to finish that by the time I get off the road. Mm -hmm. And just because, because I don't know, Brian Koppelman read it and said, you need to write the pilot yourself. Don't try to pitch this as an idea. I just decided to do it. And, and um, my agent liked it. Koppelman likes it. So they gave me a copy of Final Draft. So I'm doing that. And then I'll turn that in. And then my day job when I get off the road in September becomes Tender Mercies. And that's and so I needed something that's I could do great. for a record next summer. It's going to be cool. You know, she tried to do it with Billy Joe because, you know, Bobby Duvall talked her into mm -hmm. it, you know, because he loved Billy Joe so much. But Billy, that's not a project for Billy Joe Shaver. No. We're probably going to do Ain't No God in Mexico tomorrow night in Waco. And I'm, I'm just going to walk out for the encore and I'm just going to say, where you want it? And play. <laughs> Play ain't no God in Mexico. Hey, if you need somebody to come scream on the Jerry Jeff record, let me know. I'll, I'll be yeah. there. Right I can stand right. Cool, man. All right. Thanks, bud. Thank you. Oh, got some back. Good to see you. Hot in here.